Ministries podcast. You're listening to the B side. Let's get this record spinning. I'm Carl with the C, and this week I'm joined by Coffee Mike. Hey, everybody, how's it going? And that's it. It's just the two of us. Just the two of us. Yeah. Making sandcastles in the sky or something? I can't remember. I don't know. I was waiting for you to mock my singing again like you did last time. No, I actually was going to sing along. That's for my time period. That's just sing along. Uh, I had a completely different plan on what we were going to talk about, but Schmike had to step away from the podcast this week, and I really didn't want to get into the, the, the topic that we had, because it was really a topic he brought, so I want to make sure he's here for it, that being the Sabbath. So I think we're going to talk about a passage from Revelation chapter 3, but first, is there anything that you want to talk about? Any stories you want to tell? Any questions you have? Anything from the deep recesses of your heart that you want to scrape out? Yeah, I think I think that's a great terminology, scrape out. <laughs> um, yeah, for me lately, I don't know if anybody's faced the same problem. I'm sure you have. Sometimes you feel like you're operating out there and maybe God isn't listening. That's what I've struggled with here lately. You pray and you don't really see any result? It goes back to what Carl always says, or Bob. That would be vintage Bob. But uh, I like that vintage Bob. That's good. Yeah, I like it. it works That's pretty good. Better than SpongeBob, I think. It is. It's a lot better. Since it wasn't going to stick, I thought I'd better try it was something. Never going to stick. Um, God's not a genie. He's not a wish granter. And if we're only looking to the Father for blessings, we're looking to Him for the wrong reasons. That's kind of where I've arrived at. And I didn't think I was. But pondering my thoughts and what I've been meditating on for the last few weeks, I think I was. Just because you pray doesn't mean it's going to show up. Right. Or it's going to show up any way that you think it's going to show up. As I thought about this, I was reminded of the passage in the Bible that God even brings rain on the wicked people. So if you're comparing yourself, you see other believers out there that are doing well in whatever, their job, finances, their spiritual walk, whatever. It doesn't really matter what they're doing. It's what what what, what he's working on in your heart. That's a constant prayer of mine. Change my heart, change my mind, Father. That's a constant prayer of mine. I think it's, it might be a culmination of things coming together for me. I was just telling Carl before we started recording, it's not fun. It actually sucks. Because you can find yourself down some pretty dark holes, starting to go, wait a minute. Is that really what I think? And then you get mad at yourself or scared by what you thought. Mm -hmm. Best cure for that, I found, is to get into the Word. 
Just open your Bible. It doesn't matter where you're at. Just open it. At least for me. I mean, I'm sure somebody out there can tell you, well, if you're having problems with X, Y, and Z, go here. Well, for me, just open the Bible. First, I just, you know, peel the pages back. And where it lands, that's where I start reading. And for me, that helps. I don't know. I don't know. What's your approach on that, Carl? I mean, that helps me too. I do think it's important you're talking about prayer. And it's it's important to understand that prayer doesn't override his sovereignty. And I think sometimes that's how we approach it, like we're praying to get our will. Exactly. And, and we got to pray and align it with his will, you know what I mean? I think that's probably, it sounds like what you're in the process of figuring out. Yeah. yeah. It's tough. Yeah, it is. It's like it's like I was a fat kid again wanting the ice cream truck, mm-hmm. knowing I shouldn't have it. Yeah, he very often has to teach us the hard way. It's most often, if not always, has to teach us the hard way. And I've learned recently that it's quite appropriate that we call him father because he does teach us as your earthly father does. Mm-hmm. And I had plenty of lessons from my father that I did not enjoy. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I can tell you stories. <laughs> so it's quite appropriate that he is our heavenly father because he, he's disciplining us. He's correcting us. He's molding us. He's guiding us, just like your earthly father should be doing. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been meditating on for weeks. And it's it's a tough process when you start to look in the mirror and and say, "Am I? Am I? Do I believe what I'm saying, or am I just saying it to say it?" Mm-hmm. And if I don't believe it, why am I saying it? Yeah, you know. Well, he is molding us. You know, it's a it's a it's a process of growth. And we do have to surrender to that process and, and surrender to it his way. And that's kind of what we're going to look at, actually. I want to look at a passage. In our small group, we started studying Revelation. And I actually was the one that taught this week's lesson in chapter 3. <laughs> and I wanted to look at a, a short section of that on the podcast here because I think it's p- pretty powerful. It really spoke to me. It's in the section of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, when Jesus is, um, uh, he's giving messages to seven churches. And they were churches that existed, you know, granted, this is a, this is a prophecy given to John, but these are assemblies that existed in John's day, right? But each one, I believe, has prophetic significance to us as believers today. I think we can see ourselves in many of these churches and the one I wanted to look at specifically is the letter to the church in Sardis. Because I think it's very fitting, very applicable to what I see in a specifically American churches. Um, just by my own personal experience, because that's where I am. You good? Yeah. Get it pulled up on your app very yeah. quick. You're quick on the quick on the thumb work. Uh, that's the only thing it works with. Oh, okay. Very well. <laughs> I'm gonna read through this section and then we'll kinda we'll just uh, we'll discuss it back up. There's some notes that I want to look at and but I would just want to read it straight out. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it says this, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, 
I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Kind of what I just talked about, wasn't it? Kind of, yeah. What are your thoughts on it? <sighs> what jumps out at you? The erasing my name from the book. Hmm. That one kind of gets to me quite a bit. That's the last thing I want. Yeah, it's scary. It's scary. That jumps out to me. And probably the other thing, repent. Yeah, you see that theme over and over and over again in, in Scripture, just generally in the book of Revelation especially, but to each of these churches. I think there's only two churches, I believe, uh, that don't get a rebuke to repent. Of the seven churches. Of the seven churches, Philadelphia, and I don't believe Smyrna. Smyrna, however you say that. Uh, I don't believe they get one either. In chapter 2, right? 2, yeah. But the other, the other five churches get severe admonishments to repent, some of them. Uh, Which just means to turn around. It's, it's implying that you're going in a direction that's not good. And, and this is Jesus telling you, turn around and, and live your life the way I define you should. Right, which scripture defines how we should live our life, how we should worship, the things that are righteous, the things the things that are sinful. He gets the he gets he has the authority to define those things. And when you come out of alignment with those things, you're to repent and turn back. And that's what he's telling Sardis here. Well, I, I guess if somebody out there listening want a better clarification on how Jesus defines that, where would you send them in scripture to do that? As far as sin. And righteousness you to live their life i mean really i think every every believer should should purpose in their heart to to read all of scripture oh, i agree with and that and seek to apply that as far as i mean first and foremost i think you should read the gospels and see what jesus says in his own words i i believe the the specifics of the covenant that were given at sinai are important i would i would direct to exodus chapters 20 through 31 for that uh, I don't know beyond that I, I think it's just we, we, we need to we need to read his whole word and take his whole word seriously really well, well the reason I brought that up Carl was I've been asked that many many times you know where where, where do I go to find this roadmap that you guys are always talking about mm -hmm. I'm saying somebody's asking me that question and I and I point right to the Gospels but then I also make sure to tell them you need to understand the new, the Old Testament, because most of the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament. Correct. That's why I, I think I think understanding what's told in Exodus twenty through thirty one is very important. That whole narrative is important, but it that is. specifically is the covenant document that was given. It's important to understand that. I think Ephesians is a is a is a powerful is a powerful letter that's very applicable to us in our in our time as well. What would you say to somebody? Why well, I read it? I don't I, I don't understand it. What would you say to somebody like that? Mm, I, I don't know. I think Mike last week said you need to surround yourself with people that know more than you. And I agree with that statement. 
mean, I, I think there are sources that you can seek understanding, but you also need to make sure that you're doing your due diligence to test their human understanding against the word itself. Get to a place where you can understand. Very often, um, we don't understand things because we're not studying the full context. We're taking somebody else at their word. Or we're just reading a snippet of scripture and, and we don't understand what's being said because we don't understand the underlying narrative that it's, that it's discussing. The whole context. The whole context, which sometimes goes beyond even just the book you're reading. You know what I mean? I do. Like, like you can't understand, like if, for example, if, if Paul in one of his letters quotes from the Old Testament 50 times, if you don't understand what he's quoting from, how are you going to understand what, what he's, he's discussing? Saying. Right. Correct. So I think that's important as well. These are some questions I've had asked of me. I, I think I answered them properly, but I'm sure there are questions that people think about like that all the time. Well, I think so too. I think the uncomfortable truth though is very often we don't want to put the work into understanding. We want somebody else to understand for us and just share their understanding with us. We don't have to labor at it. And realistically, we need to be willing to put the work into studying and uh, to seeking understanding on our own as well. But that might take time away from the Xbox or TV, man. That's too bad, I guess. I guess that's the priorities then. That's the answer. That's the correct answer that many people don't want to hear, though. Many many people want the easy answer. Can I can I go to a short booklet that's going to give me all the information Cliff I need? So I, yes. So I never have to study this on my own. I can read it in 10 minutes and have all the information that I need, and I never have to put hours into study. I don't have that answer for you. I, there's nothing I could point to that I would recommend that, that I would say you're going to get all the information you're going to need for your full Christian walk in just 10 minutes. It's not going to happen. No way. I, there's something that hit me earlier today, actually. Salvation, and, and we'll kind of get into that when we dig into this letter to the Sardis, uh, to the people of Sardis a little bit. Salvation is not a moment in time. It's, it's a lifetime. It's, it's a daily walk. Salvation is not just a moment in time. It's a lifestyle. And it takes you an entire lifetime to fully learn to apply that. And it can, it's going to take work. It takes work. <clears throat> but that goes against exactly what our society is set up to do. There is no delayed gratification anymore. It is instant gratification. Instant. And the microwave takes too long. I was getting ready to mention that. Yeah, the microwave society and even that takes too yeah. long. Yeah. Well, 30 seconds before I have hot food. Come on, give me a break. Yeah. And that's really how most people think. Yeah. I, I know because I was one of them. <laughs> I was. You know, I, I spend a lot of time now reading commentaries and it's, it's, it's really interesting. The commentaries, some, some that I have read have, I'll read a scripture and then go read the commentary on that particular part of scripture. And I'm like, what are these people talking about? That is nothing what the Bible just said. How did they draw that conclusion? And these are supposed to be educated theologians. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how in the world did they draw that conclusion from that? Well, and that's that's a really good example of of what leads us astray more often than not is someone with a lot of education will say something that clearly goes against what the Bible says. But because we're conditioned to believe they're smarter than us, we think I'm just too stupid to understand. So I'm gonna I'm gonna believe and accept what this educated person says in defiance of what the most high himself says in his word because they're smarter than me. Well, smarter doesn't mean right. Just well, because they have a high IQ doesn't mean that, that their opinions are correct. It, it, it certainly doesn't mean that they're not injecting their own, their own attitudes. Bias? Yes, their own bias into the text. And that's why you need to seek your own understanding so that you aren't in a position to be led astray by someone who may not have the best intentions. 
I just don't think it's going to happen for a lot of people. I really don't. Yeah, it's probably not. Discipleship isn't popular. I remember Bob saying one time that, that he sat for his church, and his church is fairly good-sized, and he said he tried to start a discipleship class, and he said he sat there for weeks, and every single week, week after week, nobody showed up. Nobody did. Because we just, we want, like you said, we, we, we apply that instant gratification into our faith too. Exactly. We want somebody else to walk the Christian life or, or to walk the Christian walk for us. And we just want to, we want to absorb the blessings off of them without putting any work into it ourselves. I can't walk the walk for you. I can only walk the walk for me. And nobody can walk the walk for you. Your favorite pastor can't do that. Nope. You have to walk that for yourself. It reminds me of, a time in my life when I was a, uh, I was home for a summer break from college, and I needed some extra cash. And my sister said, "Well, we come to the car lot." She was a warranty administrator or something. I don't remember what she did, but she said, "But you can sell cars." I said, "Mike, you can talk to a fence post. You can do this." <laughs> I thought, "Well, yeah, I can do that." So I did, and I quickly figured out there were people out there. I was willing to go out and. and talk to people and get them interested in the car and see what their needs were. And all, and, but I didn't have the experience to close the deal. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of salesmen out there willing to come in and take half my deal to close the deal. Yep. And I think sometimes that's how we, we view what we need to do in the Bible. Like you said, we spend, what is there? How many hours are, are there in a week? 24 times seven, whatever that is. Uh, uh, he put me on the spot with math. Yeah, I know. I'm so good with a lot of stuff. Math ain't one of those things. Well, yeah, it's a lot of hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if somebody out there wants to write in, we'll, we'll, we'll wait for the answer. That's Steph will do it for us. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. She's a math girl. Um, but we go one hour a week and expect all the answers mm -hmm. to be spewed out to us, regurgitated to us. Yeah. We take that little tidbit home and go, okay, I've got it. Now let me go back to all the other hours of the week and let me do what I want. Yeah. I want to want to watch TV. I want to play with my kids. I'm not saying watching TV and playing with your kids are bad, but where do you set your priority? Yes. You said often that we don't give the respect to our father the way we should. And I thought about that a lot, especially recently. If I were to behave even remotely close sometimes, the way I do to our Heavenly Father, if I'd done that to my earthly father, there'd been a belt upside my head. Yep. Uh, and rightfully so. Yes. And I, I, I don't know why I'm saying that, but I felt moved to tell, tell you that story. And I guess it's therapy time for Mike. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you said something too, I think is important. You said, well, you mentioned what we need to do, what we need to do. Part of the problem is many of those big, important men, those highly educated men have turned work into a dirty word. We're, we're so afraid of being guilty of a works-based salvation that we take works out of the paradigm entirely. They've turned, and, you're right. They turned that work doing, and it's all, it's all over the Bible, Bible, uh, about good works. Well, I was going to say, just in this in in this context right here in Revelation chapters two and three, over and over and over again, Jesus says to the churches, "I know your works. I know your works. 
I know your works. And then he proceeds to judge them based upon their works. And he's not talking to non-believers here. He's talking to believers. Right. And making it clear that he cares about what we do. Right. We can't earn the redemption price. We can't work for that. He pays that. But clearly on the other side of our redemption, he cares what we do with our salvation. Are we working to glorify him? Yeah. Or are we not working at all? You're just kind of along for the ride, cruising down the lane. Yeah. You know, when you talked about Bob and his discipleship classes, <clears throat> it brought to mind when my kids were young, there was always the same group of parents doing things in school that needed to be done. Now, our kids went to some pretty nice schools. But even then, all they wanted to do was open their checkbook. They didn't have time to be messing with it. For me, I loved to get in there with those kids. I loved it. And I had the time because my life was jacked up by a stroke. So I was a room dad. Mm -hmm. Fairly rare. But I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think a lot of people in church would think, someone else will do that. I don't need to do that. Yeah. There's your works right there. I don't care if you're the parking lot attendant or I don't care what you're doing. One of, the, one of the things I read this past week was don't work, work for your heavenly father. It was, I'm, I'm going to quote it wrong, but more or less he was saying, whatever you're working at, treat it like you're working for your heavenly father, not your worldly masters. Yes. And that really hit me hard when I thought about that. It doesn't matter if you're scooping the kitty cat litter box or... I don't know, up at the pulpit giving an incredible sermon, do it as though you're doing it for him. It'll change your view on how you're doing things. Yes, absolutely. That's where I'm at now. That's actually the reference that he brought to mind when I, when, when, you know, on the round table, when I shared the growing from seeing him as the center of your circle to seeing yes. him as everything and your circle is just your corner in that existence. And that's really the reference he brought to mind when he hit me with that, is that, that, you know, that's what Paul means when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's un it's understanding that you exist in him. And, and he doesn't divide himself away from what we call secular things. We use the idea of secular to excuse ourselves for doing things that he, that he considers sinful as long as it's divided away. Right. He doesn't divide anything away from himself. He is everything. And he wants to be our everything. He demands that we he be our everything. Exactly. Right. And you know, when you look at, at those who are backsliding here in Sardis, that's what they're guilty of, I believe, is they're not treating him like they're everything. They're trying to they're trying to uh, what's the word? Uh, compartmentalize. I, I would say straddle fences, but yeah, I think yeah, you're that right. too. Uh, and that's the other problem we have in our society especially here in America, if, you, if you're if you all in and you're doing all you can, you're labeled a crazy, a Bible thumper. Sometimes for like people in the church. Exactly. So I think there's... People in the churches call those who are fully committed, like this remnant that he points to in Sardis here. That's the one. People ones in I'm the churches about. would call them radical. Radical, yeah. And... Anytime I hear that, it's, it's, I think it's because it, it goes up against something they're being convicted on, mm -hmm. is what I think. I just had a recent experience with someone 
that heard a message and uh <clears throat> man were they upset yeah i was like well you know why are you upset well that's wrong well why is that wrong then he proceeded to give me the worldly view of why it was wrong their feelings yep so feelings trip us up yes very all, often. all the time it happens to me constantly mm-hmm. me too and that's that that's that community we, we we need that helps keep us you know in, in line with what god wants us to do because they'll speak a word of truth into your life and while you may not like that word of truth it tends to come back around you go oh wait a minute i have terrible memories you know mm-hmm other things that you've said ronnie said bob has said even silent ron has said that every now and then pop back into my head and that's from the community but you can't forget who to go to first and that's i can't emphasize that enough you know he's got to be your first love exactly i heard i heard someone in a devotional say you know you need to have a thankful heart she starts every day when she wakes up this person was saying Thank you, Lord, for waking me up today. She walks into her office. Well, good morning, Lord. How are you? Now, somebody from the outside looking in might want to get her a white jacket. Okay? <laughs> That's society. That's the world. But I think she's really highlighting how important it is to have him centered in your life. Yes. That's what I took away from it. Not that she's thanking him for Lights coming on, the coffee being hot. Thank him for everything. Why not? That's the that's the proper approach, you know. Yep. One lady told me once. She says, "I even thought it. I, I thank him for the parking spot that was close to the door because my knees hurt. Why not?" And I think people tend to withhold that. I do too, because they don't view him as their everything. That they, they compartmentalize him. It's yeah, exactly right what they're doing. Said, yeah. Like like he's. He's too big to care about the little things or to be attentive to the little things, and he's not. Well, I sometimes think people view him as that emergency thing. Is a glass, he's behind glass, break in case of an emergency. Mm-hmm. That's a good analogy. You know, I don't want to bother him about my blown tire or uh, my kids coming home from curfew late or whatever it might be. My kids are grown and gone, by the way, but so there is no curfew. But I'm saying... Break in case of an emergency only. Which means you're treating him like he's just a problem solver for you. Or a blesser, blessing giver. Blessing giver. And he's not your everything. These are some of the thoughts that roll around in my head all the time. Well, there's a couple things I want to dig into in this passage a little bit. But first, I think we're going to go ahead and take our, our song break. This week, we're going to play a song from ASAP Preach called My Lane. Again, Be sure and stick around, catch us on the other side, and we'll dig into Revelation chapter 3 just a little bit deeper. Thanks for listening.
All my followers follow him, we are just playing the potter's hands And I am not afraid of who I might offend Stop doing what the world wants you, like Simon says The devil trying to blind you, get it inside your head This is my lane, got an army right behind me This is my way, all I said I had was wiped clean Let me tell you about the Lord of Lords Rain and bless, there is more in store, I see a rainbow Don't know where you're going, you need to pray more Sun shining like diamonds, but will I break? No Again, that was My Lane by ASAP Breach. So I want, to re- I want to reread one of the verses here. It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. And he says to the, to the broader community of the church in Sardis, he says, I have not found your works complete before my God. There's a couple terms that I want to dig into. The first one is complete. In the Greek, that is plerau, and it means to make full. So it's sort of like this glass, I know people listening can't see, but like this glass of water, like this cup of water. Um, when it's drained like three quarters of the way down, it's not full. Right. To bring it up to fullness, to, the, to fill it to the brim is to it's to make it full. He's saying your, your, your works are, are a half-filled glass, and I need you to fill the glass up all the way. Works there just for those who might be tempted to try to sanitize what Jesus is saying to make it more in line with church doctrine. 
works there is ergon in Greek, and it literally means a task assigned to a worker. There's no way to sanitize this down. He's talking about actual physical works that you, you, you do. Obeying him, obeying his commandments, when he lays something on your heart, your, the individual will, when he lays something on your heart to do, obeying that. The broader will, when he gives a commandment in scripture, obeying that. He's saying all of that needs to be completed. All of that needs to be brought to fullness. And he's telling the people in Sardis, you're not doing that. He says, you have, what does he say later? Uh, or actually, before that, I guess. I know your works. In verse 1, he says, I know your works. Again, it's Argon, same word. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's saying cool. on the surface, they look good. They look pretty good on the surface, but on the inside, dead. That's that's what I was talking about, alluding to earlier. That scares me. It truly does. It's almost like that Michael Jackson song, The Man in the Mirror. You look at the mirror, that's who you are. That's what you, but is that a true representation of who you are? Mm hmm. Yeah. Are you saying this to sound good? To. Puff yourself up. What's your motive? What's your, but yes, exactly. What's your motive on that? And I think that's probably what he's saying to the people in Sardis here. You're, I, I see, I see past the veneer, and I see in your heart, and I see your motive, and your actions don't match your heart. Was it David that said, "Oh Lord, search me out, search my heart"? I believe in Psalm fifty-one. What? No, no, that's odd. Like, but yes, he did. It's one of the Psalms where it says that. I've prayed that prayer and. I will continue to pray that prayer because I don't want to be one of the members in this church that you're describing. I don't want to, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to speak it and not walk it. That scares me to death. I wasn't sure if I was going to contrast that, but you said that word hypocrite. And I think I have to now. We like to point the finger at the Pharisees. You know, Jesus, Yeshua, he, he repeatedly rebukes the Pharisees. So it's easy for us to sit back and say, aha, the Pharisees were so bad. I want to read something that he said to the Pharisees that contrasts really powerfully with what he's telling Christians in Sardis so that we're not tempted to point the finger at them and not see that we're guilty of the same error ourselves. I, I know I am I, at times. Yeah, that's what and that's what scares me because I don't want to be. We're all guilty at times. That's why I said, yeah, I wasn't saying, yeah, I know you are. <laughs> I figured you just no, 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 with me. No, no, no. I also want to point out, I haven't, like, B-side this week, not one mention of your man card violations. Not one. Well, I figured you beat me up. very kind. Uh, for Ronnie, on the A-side enough. <laughs> I like the A-side. But I'm going to call it the round table if that's, to if, make him if happy. If it's that important to him, I will call it anything he wants. <laughs> but I like what Bob said about being an H table, because that's what we've got here. Yeah. For those that can't see, I've got a, a weird setup <laughs> to make this all work, and it does look like an H. It's definitely not round. So in, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, it's one of the sharpest rebukes that Jesus gives to the Pharisees, and it's it lasts the entire chapter. He rebukes them all the way through chapter 23, and it's 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 the religious leaders in general, but but narrowly focused on the scribes and Pharisees in particular. Uh, it, it, like he starts right off the bat. Chapter 23, verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. Mm -hmm. Hypocrisy. 
So he's saying, you know, I'm not going to get into the weeds on the chair of Moses. I think that was archaeology has shown that was probably a literal thing in the synagogues. But what essentially he's saying is they teach the law of Moses. So when they teach the law of Moses, obey every word of that, because that's from me. But what they do is hypocritical. They're not applying the law of Moses to themselves. They're demanding that you apply it, but they're not living in accordance with it. He kind of, he makes that clear and I'm not going to get into it, but in Mark chapter seven, there's an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees there as well. And they're criticizing him for not adhering to their man-made traditions about ritual hand washing, which is not in the Bible anywhere. And he refuses to. And then he points out how hypocritical they are by specifically uh, using the example of the fifth commandment, which is honoring your father and your mother. And he points out that they, they find excuses to disobey the fifth of the big 10 commandments and then have the audacity to tell him that he's a sinner because he's not applying their, applying their man-made traditions. And he says in Mark chapter seven, verse nine, you've become experts at setting aside the commandments of God in favor of your own traditions. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, does that sound familiar? That's pretty much just about every church anymore. We call it good doctrine now. So did the Pharisees. So did the Pharisees. And they had generations of, of godly men in their history going back hundreds of years that were saying the same thing. So just because a lie is old, a, a lie, did, I've said this before, a lie does not become true with time. <laughs> it's still a lie. It's still a lie, no matter how old the lie is. And then later, this is the part that I actually wanted to highlight. I didn't have it. Sorry, I don't have it highlighted in my Bible because this is new. I'm not going to go through and cut this silence out either. Going to make you all suffer with us. Are you talking? It's very uncomfortable. It's actually verse 27 I want to read. He says... He gives all these woes to the W-O-E, woes to the Pharisees. And then he says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Does that not sound like it's identical to what he told the church of Sardis? It is identical. Yeah, it is. You seem right on the outside, but on the inside, something's wrong. And, you know, that's something I think about all the time. I don't want to be whitewashed. He was great for Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> not so much for me, you know? Yeah. Pretty, in uh, also, just to, to, to make it clear what he's saying there, hypocrisy in the Greek is hypocrisis. And it's actually an actor's term. It's a play actor's term, and it's a reference to someone who acts a part Playing on a, a stage. Part. Yep. He's saying you're like somebody who puts a mask on and pretends to be somebody you're not. And actually, my understanding is the Pharisees very much looked down upon Greek-style play acting. So this is deeply insulting when he told them that. Ooh. Deeply insulting. He intentionally insulted them when he says this. And he says that part of their hypocrisy was that they were covering, they were pretending to be lawful on the outside, but on the inside, they were lawless. He uses the Greek term anomos there. It means to be apart from the law or in opposition with the law. And the law in that context, he's talking about the law of God. He's not talking about the law of Rome. He didn't care about the law of Rome. He's talking no. about God's law, the law that he probably gave himself. He's saying, you're putting a mask on to make it look like you're lawful. But on the inside, I see past your mask 
you're not. And he says the same thing to the people in Sardis. I see past the mask you're wearing. You make it look like you're a righteous, godly Christian, but on the inside, your motives are messed up. Something's wrong, and you need to fix this. You need to repent. Because what they're doing, not it's not just what we do that matters. It's also the reason why we do it. Do it. It's, it's the heart condition again. Yeah. You know, I, we all, all a lot of people, most people have come quite become quite skilled at putting a mask on for whatever situation they're in. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's carried over into our into our faith as well. Yeah, it's kind of our culture. It is our We're culture. culturally saturated with it to pretend, especially within the social media age. Oh yeah. I mean, if you believed everything you saw on social media, my goodness. Yeah. Somebody, nobody has any problems out there. Everybody's happy and they're traveling all over the world. They have no financial concerns. Yeah, everything's all perfect. Their, all their kids are great. You know, it's just, come on. That's not life. No, that's nobody's life. And that's what has made its way into our church life. Yep. Good morning, Sunday morning. Welcome to church. Meanwhile... For all we know, they could have kicked the tenant out because they were five hours shorter on their rent. Who knows? Right. We don't know that. Yeah. Because nobody wants to be transparent. Yep. And there's only one that does know. Right. And his name's Jesus, and he does see. He does that, see. You know, that phrase that people lean on, you know, when, when they're convicted, they're saying, well, he knows my heart. He does. He does. And that should terrify you. Exactly. He sees your heart. He sees those hidden thoughts. And... He, <laughs> telling you if he if he judged me based upon my hidden thoughts that pop up into my mind every once in a while without a covering without his blood covering i'd be in trouble exactly. i think we'd all be in trouble well, he, he sees my heart is not an excuse to sin that's what i'm trying to say he does see your heart and he sees that it needs it desperately needs to be refreshed and and made new i think he used the word once recircumcised yeah circumcised the heart yeah and i think i think that's a great terminology cut away what isn't needed yeah and when you know I'm not sure if what you referenced earlier is from Psalm 51, but I know what he does say in Psalm 51 is replace, re take my heart of, of, of stone and put a clean heart within me. I probably got that. He basically says this heart in me is not right. It's not good. And he basically asks the most high cut this heart out and replace it with something good. Cause I, I, I look inside myself and I see darkness. I see that I'm a whitewash. That's what David's saying. I see that I'm a whitewash tomb. I see the dead in me and I hate it. And I want you to fix it for me. And he does. He responds to those prayers. When we break ourselves and we acknowledge our guilt, when we acknowledge our shortcomings, when we acknowledge our inward flaws, he is faithful to fix that. But we have to acknowledge. And that was the problem with the Pharisees is they weren't acknowledging it. And I think that's the problem with this, specifically with the church in Sardis and connecting that to us today. He wants to fix it, but we have to acknowledge the problem first. But by doing so, you're giving up control. And I think that's a big issue. I think so, too. I mean, control for people is everything. And actually, control is an illusion. Mm -hmm. It truly is. It took me a long time to figure that one out, but it's true. You really don't control anything. It's, it's, a, it's a bastardization of the intent of our creation. We were never created to be fully in control over and above his sovereignty. That's what we want. That's satanic in origin. Right? That's, that's straight from the serpent. The idea that we should be able to take control away from him. We don't have that right. No. We don't. I'm glad I don't have it because I can make a mess of myself quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness he's in control. I have made a mess myself. I have. Uh, yeah, I, I stopped short. I have as well. So what we have here is that Jesus is clearly evaluating the works of believers in Sardis. 
He is evaluating their works and the intent behind those works. And then, but then, then he contrasts it, tripped over my words there. And he says in verse four, but, or so after he criticized, after he rebukes the broader community of Sardis, he says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. He says, I see their heart and I see the outpouring of their heart. I see the inside and the outside. And they've got it right. There's a remnant there. Do you think, Carl, that, because this just popped in my head, do you think that people think once they've accepted Jesus and they're saved, that the work is done and they're the ones that walk, be able to walk in the white with Jesus? I do. I do. And I think it's because that's what we've been taught. We've been taught that works is such a dirty word that we just sit back and we go on cruise control and do nothing. And that's not what he tells us. He does. We do have the indwelling of the spirit. He guides us. He teaches us. He causes us to obey, but we have to surrender. We have to give that control up and we have to surrender and we have to, we have to match his, his leading to our actions. We have to match our actions to his leading. So then reverse. Does that make sense? It does. Which, which does mean that you're doing things. Works is not a dirty word. That's part of it. And when you just sit back and say, I can do whatever I want because he's my righteousness, <laughs> that's not what he says. The, the goal is for him to clothe us in, in his righteousness, but that means that we would start behaving righteously. <laughs> There's always a catch, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? We don't like that part because it involves something. We, we have to give something. And it's like we want everything for free. We do. I mean, and yes, it's a free gift. Don't twist my words. Somebody will sound bite me and twist my words. I'm not saying that his salvation is not a free gift. I'm not saying that he doesn't freely give us the redemption, but clearly this is Jesus talking. I'm not putting words into his mouth. I'm just reading you what he says. These words in Revelation chapter three are directly attributed to Jesus himself. And he is evaluating us based upon what we do with our salvation. And he's contrasting that with a remnant who were doing righteously with salvation. And he says, you're worthy. And we're going to dig into that word in a second because it's even deeper than what that word implies in English. You know, but he's evaluating works here and he's saying that you have a remnant here. I mean, I believe they were probably treated like outcasts for it. You know what I mean? And I think I you see the same paradigm in the churches today when there's, when there's a group of people that are like, we're not going in the right direction. Typically, they get treated like outcasts and pushed to the side. And that's not that's or the church splits and <laughs> yeah, you see that a lot too. You know, I, I, if we could just unite Jesus's brides here in America, just start here in America. Can you imagine the force for good? Can you just can you just think about that for a minute? Yeah, we a lot of churches can't agree on the proper way to give or to receive. Uh, breaking a bread and you know uh, do this in remembrance of me i am i'm i'm, I'm where am i searching for uh what's that called uh you break the bread drink the wine it's called uh oh the communion thank you i've i lost it there for a minute i've seen arguments over should it be grape juice should it actually be wine or should it be water is it a bread or is it a biscuit or is it something that you buy in bulk? I've seen ridiculous mm -hmm. arguments over that. And, and not to get not, not to get off on a rabbit trail, you know what would solve all those arguments just like that? 
Let's hear it. If we would accept the fact that he clearly says that that is a Passover meal and just do it the way he says to do it. But no, that's Jewish. There you go. I was going to say that's going to be a problem because... We, we surely we surely were not expected to follow our Jewish Messiah in ways that might be perceived as somewhat Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> yeah, like that would be just nonsense, right? Right. Well, exactly. You know, you. I went to my first Passover meal because I, like many, thought, "Well, that's a Jewish thing," you know. And I have to tell you, it was Micah held it here here at his church, and uh, it was an eye opener, and it was very, very uh, fulfilling. Everything has significance. It's very spiritual. Um, I think so many times we look down upon the Jewish ways as, oh, I don't want any part of that. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that's probably because, well, they're the ones that killed Jesus. I think so, too. So if I say something good about Jews, am I not? Supporting Jesus. Yeah, and we forget the fact that the vast majority of the of the first believers were Jewish. Many of these individuals that Jesus is writing to are probably former Orthodox Jews that became believers exactly. in Jesus. They didn't abandon they didn't abandon godly principles. You yeah. know what I mean? They didn't abandon his ways because there was no reason to. I I, I just I we have a problem with I call it flag flying. You know, I'm under the flag of X Y and Z Church. And what they're doing is right. What everybody else is doing is wrong. We got to get past that. Uh, I'm not going to go off in the off of the ditch on this, but man, I agree. Yeah, we just need to get back to his ways. Doing right. doing his way, his what way. What does the Bible say? Yep. Bible says this. That's what we need to do. I don't care that great 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 grandmother used to do it this way. That doesn't mean that that's right. Right. You know. So what? If it doesn't say it in the Bible, great-great-grandmother was wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love her. Great quilt maker, but she was wrong. Yeah. Don't let sentimentality right. lead you astray. Before I dig into what this word worthy here means in the Greek, I want to I wanna look at something. There's this book that Steph got. It's called The New Manners and Customs of Bible Times. It's really fascinating, and they get into to, to certain ways of living that kind of clarify some idioms and parables that we find in scripture and there's one part that i turn to today and it's about is it, winnowing is that bookmarked it is i did do a book gold star for proud carl yeah you're proud of me we're gonna get a gold star board up here <laughs> <laughs> and it's about winnowing and you see this you, you see this uh uh uh, analogy used frequently in scripture from the prophets like amos all the way through you know john the baptist says that his winnowing fork is in his hand about jesus and that he's going to clear his threshing floor is what John the Baptist says. Uh, where does he say that? Matthew chapter three. Uh, and Jesus uses that terminology for separating the, the wheat from the tares. Matthew chapter 13. You see it frequently. This gets into the specifics of how that worked. And I think it gives us some clarity because I think the reason this is important is because sometimes I think God's doing something in our life and we're looking for answers. What are you telling me? And I think it's helpful to understand what he's doing and why. Because I think very often we come to hard times and we think that automatically we've done something wrong and that might not necessarily be the case per se. It may just be that he's sifting you. So the way this would work after when they harvested, they would harvest the whole field, right? And everything grew up together. Wheat tears all of it. It just grew up together and they harvested all of it together. And then they put it into a pile. They put the heads into a pile. 
and they would take what was called a winnowing fork, what John the Baptist is referencing, and they would toss it into the air repeatedly. They would take all of it, everything that's in the pile, and throw it into the air. And then the wind would carry, carry away the lighter chaff, and the heavier grain would continue to fall. If they didn't have wind, they would actually use a fan really? to create wind to blow chaff away. I want you to think about, like, as, I'm, as I'm explaining this, think about him using that as a metaphor for how he does us, for how he treats us, for how he purifies us, throws you into the air, creates wind to blow away chaff, right? We, th we automatically think the storms are bad, and the storms might be, he might be using the storms, the wind, the throwing, the tossing to mold you, right, to make you more like him. When they would work that down, then they, it, it would get to a point where the fork would no longer pull stuff up, but there's still chaff there, so they would use a winnowing shovel. Same thing. Use the shovel, throw it up in the air repeatedly. Over and over again, they'd do this until they got as much of the chaff out as they could, but that didn't completely purify the harvest, right? You still have the tares and the wheat together, and you still have the, the wheat covered in chaff covered in things that aren't good right yeah so then they would take something called a sieve and it was like a bag with holes in it and they would put it into a sieve and they would violently shake it violently shake this and they i think they would even put other other debris in there to beat against the grain to break away the bad parts so they would violently shake this so that all the bad parts would be broken off and the grain would fall the grain would fall through. And then they could separate the wheat and the tares based on color because when wheat matures, it turns yellow. When tares mature, they turn black. Or, of all colors, they turn black. What a, what, a, what a picture. Isn't it? Also, just as a side note, tares, if eaten, if the, if the tare grain is eaten, it causes bit, it, it, they're bitter and they cause dizziness and sickness. That's interesting. That's a pretty cool book, Carl. Yeah. Kudos to you, Steph. So that, and the reason I read that out or I explain that out is because it's really important to understand that's what he says he's going to do with believers. He's going to. You, it, to, to be separated out, you have got to go through the process of being tossed by the winnowing fork, tossed by the winnowing, winnowing shovel, and sifted like wheat. That's what Jesus told Peter. Remember that? Yes, I do. He said, Satan has approached the father and asked him to sift you like wheat. Does Jesus say, I prayed that you wouldn't have to go through that? No. Nope. Wish he would, but he didn't. He said, I pray that you'll have strength to endure. That's why he's got, trying to get to the best of us. Yeah, because the sifting is necessary. To strip away what's unclean, to strip away what's not good. It's necessary. I'm sitting here thinking about my problem. I've uh, things I've been th working on, and I think that's what's happening to me. Let me tell you, it sucks. It's not fun, is it? Because I mean, one day I'm riding high, the next day it's man, I can't hardly get up out of bed. And it's not fun, not fun at all. But viewing it as you described what they were doing with the wheat to refine it, mm -hmm. I need to make sure I'm always looking at the storms as a refinement of me. From God. Yeah. Not hating the storm for what it is, but loving the storm for what it's going to do for me. Exactly right. And understanding that he's the source of the storm. He's the source of the storm. But how many times have you heard people say, why, is, why does God allow this to happen? Why this, that, or the other? 
you know, I, my my little brain can no way, shape, or form comprehend his master plan. I arrived at that long ago, but I still try to apply my logic to his plan. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Not we, even close. We naturally want answers. Yes, we, we seek answers. I think he's designed us to be inquisitive. And sometimes we allow that inquisitiveness to get out of control and get by way. our flesh nature, yes. by our fallen nature. And we start asking questions of him that we shouldn't be asking. Uh, I, I think the, the question we should always be asking when he places us in the sieve is, what do you want me to learn from this? What chaff is, it, it, am I still holding on to that you want me to let go of? That should always be our question. And in his due time, when the time is right, he'll answer that question. We have to be patient with it, though. We have to be patient with the process and always surrender to his sovereignty and always, always be grateful through it. The key word there is grateful. Mm -hmm. Ronnie likes to say, praise him in the hall, praise him in the... I mean, he's right. Good or bad, keep going. Yep. So, and I'll close with this and I'll give you the final word. Remember, yeah, oh, don't, don't, don't recoil. You don't have to, uh, your front of work can be a prayer. I don't care. So part of that, that process was, if you recall, the one-wing fork, you'd toss it up and heavier grain would fall and the lighter chaff would blow away. Worthy here. So he says, I'm going to read this again, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. Worthy there is axios in Greek. It literally means weighty. Weight? Weighty. Weight. As in to draw down the scale. That's literally what it means. Which goes perfect with the wheat thing. Yep, the wheat. Heavier. Weighty in the sense of drawing down the scale because in that time they use scales to assign value. And he's saying that you draw this you draw down the scale of value. You draw down the scale. Wheat is valuable, chaff is not chaff is useless it's, it's just for burning but wheat has value he's saying that because of your deeds you draw down the scale of value and again this is in the context of him contrasting their works jesus not me not my opinion jesus is contrasting and evaluating the works of the broader community in sardis and the remnant in sardis and he tells the remnant you are more valuable in my sight because you haven't neglected the deeds that I've told you to perform. We can, we can, we can increase or diminish our own value based upon what we do with our salvation. We can tarnish ourselves. He says that they were refusing to defile themselves. You know, that's always, and when we talk about defiling clothing, that's a metaphor for sin. They refuse to be covered in sin. He's not saying they're sinless. Nobody is. Right. But I guarantee you what they were doing when they became guilty of sin, they were acknowledging it and repenting and giving it over to him. And the broader community in Sardis was not because they had become casual about their sin, I believe. And that's what I see in the American churches today. I see apathy towards sin. I see a casual attitude towards sin, toward the things that he defines as sin. And I don't see a seriousness about it. I think it's because the world was shoving down everyone's throat, trying to, that it's okay if they're doing that. You should be tolerant. I wish that word was never in our English language. 
It's used, overused. It's abused. Abused, thank you. <laughs> You've got to acknowledge the sin. We mistake being kind towards sinners with being accepting of sin. And those right. are two different things. And you're right. It's out there. It's all over the place. Yep. I mean, you see it almost any Sunday in any church, you'll see it. The hard sermons are no longer taught as much as they once were. I think because they don't want to offend, another great word, people. Because mm -hmm. they want them to come back and put the cheeks in the seats, as our dear friend Pastor Micah would say. It's not about cheeks in the seat. It's about souls that are saved. Yep. That hear the truth. That's kind of my final thought there, Carl. All right. I'll just close it out with what Jesus says. Oh, you taught me now. Okay. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. That says it all. We can either choose to obey, to do things his way, or we can choose to do things man's way and hope for the best. I've, but, seen, I've seen what happens then. Yeah. It's not good. No. He has a way that's right. He defines it in his word, and it's long past time that we start believing what he says. Before you go, though, one, one final question. Why do you think the word works has been turned to what it is today? What do you think is driving that? Is it because people don't want to do them? And it's nasty to say? Or, I mean, what's the story behind it? What do you think? Very, very, very short answer because we could do an entire episode on that and probably will in the future. When most people think of works, they think of obeying the law. And we have demonized the Father's law to the point where we have almost, in Christian theology, turned obeying the law itself into a sin. And that's a problem. We've almost turned sin on its head and made it out like it's unchristian to even obey the Father when he gives a commandment, especially when it's one that's perceived as Jewish. I think that's, I think that's in my study of church history and the way things evolved, I think that's at the heart of it. So we're back to the, it being a Jewish thing again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Ultimately, works is a dirty word, but the dirtier word is law. We hate the word law. Absolutely hate it. Even though, like I read from Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is sharply rebuking the Pharisees, it was because they were concealing lawlessness in their hearts. Not lawfulness, lawlessness. And in another place, when he, he's talking about the final judgment, I'll, I'll end it with this, when he's talking about the final judgment, and he says that on that day, individuals will come to, come to me and say, I, did I not do many works in your name? Wow. Did I not perform many mighty deeds in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. That's in a future New Covenant final judgment context, and he is still rebuking people for the same reason he was rebuking the Pharisees for having a lawless heart. That's something to keep in mind. Jesus clearly didn't think that law was a dirty word. He clearly didn't think that works was a dirty word. Well, I think I think your idea of a episode on works is great. I'm sitting here, I got 9,000 questions popping in my head. Yeah, maybe we'll just do an episode just on asking questions and, and digging into the word and seeing where we come together. On it, but I, I and I do think a lot of it also is, is is people are afraid of falling into a works based salvation, and what that essentially means is you believe that you can get to heaven without Jesus, 
that you can somehow you can you be can be a good enough person. Yes, you can obey your way to heaven. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Jesus is saying. But there are rewards for choosing to align yourself with Him, and that involves what you do. That involves how you live. It involves how you worship, and that's biblical. So we've 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 got to we've got to get away from the idea that we're so afraid of being works-based salvation that we're not doing any work for him. Right? If you believe in Jesus and you believe that he paid the redemption that you can't pay yourself, you're not engaging in a works-based salvation. You just understand that he has a way that he calls right and he wants you to follow him in it. And that's where we need to be and we need to make sure that we're aligning our way with his way in everything. He needs to be our everything, not just the center of the circle, everything. The whole circle and beyond it. He's got to be all in all. That's a lot to think about. I guess where we'll close it. All right, then. You mind praying us out? No problem at all. Father, thank you for this time together. and, And I hope that you've used us to touch someone out there, Father, that needed to hear this. Father, I pray for the return of of your ways to our church here in America, Father. I pray that people get involved and walk the path that Jesus has laid out for us. I thank you for everything we have, Father, and for always, always being there. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.